have been told by a volunteer that due to extenuating circumstances, we are not going to wait any longer. Um, hopefully more people will come in. We're going to make this just a nice, intimate conversation about poetry and medicine. Um, we actually can run a little bit long because there's not another session in this room at 2 o'clock. So uh, we can do a question and answer. And um, we are going to have a reading from Michael Saltzman, the editor of the book Poetry in Medicine, which is available downstairs in the Ivy Bookshop. They told me to say that, but I'm also telling you this is a book you have to have on your bookshelf. Um, we're going to have Michael and also three readers um, who are contributors to the anthology, Shirley Brewer, Clarinda Harris, and Jennifer Wallace. Uh, first, I'm going to introduce my dear friend and mentor, Michael Saltzman. And um, I'd like to just tell you the story of how Michael and I met because it, it speaks to who he is as a person and a poet. Uh, Michael and I met five years ago, and he was a City Lit board member at the time and had initiated the Harris Poetry Prize and was its first judge. Um, and I was honored to win that prize. After I came down off cloud nine, I <laughs> spoke to Greg Wilhelm, and um, Greg asked me whether I'd like some feedback from the judge, and I said, sure, of course I would. I certainly did not expect to have an invitation um, to the judge's home. Um, where I was coached on the art of submitting my work and um, made improvements to the manuscript. And that was the start of a, a friendship that I'm so grateful for um, with Michael, who is a, a very generous poet, who's become a, men a mentor to me and is a mentor to many um, Baltimore writers. He's also my valued colleague on the staff of Little Potatsuk Review as our art consultant. And um, I just think with, with his input, the magazine has, has become a, a beautiful, it was lovely before, but it's pretty amazing now. Poetry and medicine reflects Michael's quality of generosity. Its pages include luminaries of Western literature like Chaucer, Shakespeare, Emily Dickinson, modern poets, who place their unflinching gaze upon the body, such as Linda Paston, Lucille Clifton, and Stanley Plumley. And these poets are presented side by side with writers from our local community, people that you'll hear today. The book is one that any serious collector of poetry must have. It is a definitive presentation of poetry about doctors, patients, nurses, and the body that makes each of us human. It represents six years of work, but also Michael's lifelong passion for poetry, because he's part of an honored tradition of physician poets that includes Keats and William Carlos Williams. With this book, Michael attempts to heal the gulf between the physical and emotional experience of being human. Uh, with someone as accomplished as Michael is, um, I have a very long bio in front of me, so I'm going to present the highlights so we can hear from Michael and the other readers um, and spend more time listening to their work. So the highlights of Michael's bio, Michael Saltzman is an internationally known neurosurgeon, poet, and art critic, born in Pilsen, Czechoslovakia in 1946, the son of Holocaust survivors. He came to the United States in 1949 and graduated first in his class from the program in liberal arts and medical education at Boston University. 
He was a fellow in neurophysiology at the National Institutes of Health and trained in neurosurgery at Columbia University. He was on the faculty of the University of Maryland School of Medicine and served as chairman, as chairman of the Department of Neurosurgery. He's written scientific and medical articles, six textbooks. He is former president of the Congress of Neurological Surgeons, the Contemporary Museum in Baltimore, and the City Lit Project. And there you see Michael's three great um, areas of interest and expertise, medicine, literature, and art. Michael lectures widely on art and the brain, and on the brain and creativity. His poems appear in such journals as Alaska Quarterly Review, Barrow Street, Connecticut Review, Harvard Review, the Hopkins Review, Hudson Review, Poet Lore, and Raritan. His poems have received six nominations for a Pushcart Prize, one for a Best of the Web Award, and have appeared on Poetry Daily, Verse Daily, and many anthologies. He is the series editor for the Clorinda Harris Poetry Prize and also judged uh, this year's competition, which was won by uh, Danuta Kosk-Koshinska. He has authored four chapbooks and two collections titled The Clock Made of Confetti and The Enemy of Good is Better. One of the themes of this day, this particular City Lit Festival, has been Words Heal. And I would like to welcome one of our greatest healers in two disciplines, Michael Saltzman. To uh, properly thank Laura, I've got to stand at least for a brief while. Uh, I owe her many, many pleasant times and great inspiration. Uh, and really, whatever has happened to Little Potucks with you over the years, uh, I think is really her doing. Before uh, starting on the topic at hand, I want to express thanks to Greg Wilhelm, uh, the founder. Uh, of both the City Lit Project and the City Lit Festival at the Pratt Library, a man who has immensely enlarged the literary life of Baltimore and had the courage and wisdom to go ahead with today's event during a week of anguish in the history of our great city. More than any other art, literature has both the capacity to deal with the most painful and important subjects of human existence and the nuance to do it properly. I suspect and hope that some of you in the audience at this annual gathering will become inspired, become better and deeper readers, and perhaps even writers of poetry and prose, creators of the literature that consoles us in the midst of turmoil and confusion, makers of the books that help explain us to ourselves. In doing so, your motivations will not significantly differ from those of many artists and writers throughout history who've explored what Michael Collier in his foreword to the anthologies called The Mystery of Our Existence as Experienced Through Sickness, Healing, and Death, and Through the Inexorable Failings of the Body. All of us begin as patients. We are born as patients. We carry within us the sources of and susceptibilities to major and minor disruptions to our physical and emotional vitality. Like most of you, I was a reader before I became a writer. And that's good advice, I think. And like a few, I was a poet before I became a doctor. I was also caught in the last major polio outbreak 
when I was five years old, and this experience was definitive in determining my choice of a medical career. As a bedbound child, I read poems and stories by Poe, novels by Sinclair Lewis, and Arthur Conan Doyle's transcriptions of notes made by one Dr. John Watson, a known friend of Sherlock Holmes. Much later, I would run across especially powerful poems on medical themes and place them in a drawer for later use. Poems by Dickinson and Walt Whitman from the 19th century, more modernist offerings by William Carlos Williams and Anne Sexton. It soon became clear that the number and power of literary works devoted to medical themes had grown in parallel with the development of modern medicine and the modern hospital. And in fact, the number and quality of poems about the subjects uh, that are developed uh, in the book uh, increased through the centuries in proportion to the degree to which medicine actually had something to offer to patients and individuals in terms of their health and their well-being. Another thing that became clear to me as I looked at all the poems throughout the centuries was that the history of these poems really followed the major contagion or illness of the period. Uh, and so the first really big cache of poems comes around the time of the Black Plague, uh, which, by the way, received the definitive description just three or four years after it first entered Europe uh, by Boccaccio in the Decameron. That is where we have the first great description of the play. Uh, and then uh, next came tuberculosis or consumption. And then in the 19th century, uh, typhoid uh, and typhus and cholera. Uh, and then right up to the modern plagues, uh, such as polio uh, and AIDS and cancer, and even a plague that afflicts us now because of the successes of modern medicine, uh, Alzheimer's disease. So there are principles that one can gather uh, from uh, the history of poetry about medicine and related subjects. Uh, relatively few of the authors uh, in the book uh, are physicians, uh, although I will mention a few uh, in actually reading the poems. And because we're, in a sense, en famille, a relatively small group, many of you are ready writers uh, who are familiar to me, I'm going to, if you don't mind, sit uh, in order to read the poems. Uh, I first did that years ago uh, at the uh, Hartford a poetry literary society where they had this wonderful fan chair that you could sit down in. And it was like one of my favorite readings I ever gave in my life. And I felt just like Humphrey Bogart, you know, in one of those movies of the 1940s. So in the era when uh, physicians couldn't do much uh, to heal anyone except to offer them psychological comfort, Poetry about medicine was often used as a metaphor uh, for discussing social ills. And we're going to get back to this later on. But an example from the book is the very famous poem, The Sick Rose, by William Blake. O rose, thou art sick, the invisible worm that flies in the night 
in the howling storm, has found out thy bed of crimson joy, and his dark secret love does thy life destroy. And Blake clearly isn't talking about contagion that a physician could treat. Uh, and the mass of the Red Death uh, by Poe and the Conqueror Worm also are talking about much grander subjects uh, than just simply illness. So for a long time, many of the poems by Dryden and other people were poems critical of medicine and Moliere, of course, sort of famous play criticizing doctors. And, uh, and it continued for a long time. And even Auden in the 20th century, who loved his father, who was a doctor, his mother was a nurse. Uh, Auden originally was going to major in biology at either Oxford or Cambridge, wherever he was, and then switched to English literature, I think, to all of our benefits. And he adds this poem called, Give Me a Doctor. Give me a doctor, partridge plump, short in the leg and broad in the rump, an endomorph with gentle hands will never make absurd demands that I abandon all my vices nor pull a long face in a crisis, but with a twinkle in his eye, will tell me that I have to die. So uh, we already talked about the fact that uh, there are many Maryland poets included in the anthology. We've been lucky in Maryland and Baltimore to have great poets. Uh, and uh, two of them, past poet warriors of the state, uh, wrote two of my absolute favorite poems in the entire book, and they are procedure-oriented, so they might appeal to a surgeon. Uh, the first is Linda Paston's at the gynecologist. The body so carefully contrived for pain wakens from the dream of health again and again to hands impersonal as wax and instruments that pry into the closed chapters of flesh. See me here, my naked legs caught in these metal stirrups, galloping toward death with flowers of ether in my hair. And Lucille Clifton's magnificent lumpectomy weave about a surgical procedure. And many of the modern and contemporary women poets have been very concerned with body image uh, and with breast cancer, among other issues. So this is one pectomy. All night I dream of lips that nurse and nurse and the lonely nipple lost in the loss and the need that to feed that turns at last on itself that will kill its body for its hunger's sake. All night I hear the whispering, the soft, love calls you to this night. For love, for love, all night it is the one breast comforting the other. Now there are two physician poets who acted as spiritual mentors, if you will, uh, to the long uh, process of giving birth to this book. Uh, and they are the greatest poet uh, physician of the 19th century, Keats, and the greatest poet physician of the 20th century, William Carlos Williams. And this is my poem, 
about Keats as a medical student, and he trained at Guy's Hospital in London. It's called The Apprentice Surgeon, and it, has, it carries an epigraph from Stevens, Death is the Mother of Beauty. And I considered this kind of victory, this poem, uh, because it's been said that the vast majority of uh, masters and doctoral theses written by creative writing and poetry candidates are written either about Keats or about Wallace Stevens, their two favorite poets, and here they are on the same page. The Apprentice Surgeon. How awful for him to cut the flesh or watch a deep cut made before carbolic acid, before ether, before hope was more than a wrench on the curb of the roadside, lungs etched with cavitation and fawn-colored phlegm. He knew how death would cork his mouth, killing his speech, its beauty and necessity. Keats was an apprentice then to death, his own, and all of life beyond its reach. The Nightingale Song, the clay of ancient Greece, and that season of reconciliation for which he longed. Entombed in life, he felt no peace, the spirit of fame and got some of it wrong while setting some right. Dreamed of autumnal skies while standing at the bedside, attending to the heart of God. And here is William Carlos Williams, who probably revolutionized free verse to a greater degree than any poet since Whitman, and tried to establish an American school of poetry to battle what he considered the effete European style uh, of, of uh, T.S. Eliot and Pound. This poem probably was written about an illness of his own. Very little poem, very big. The world contracted to a recognizable image. At the small end of an illness, there was a picture, probably Japanese, which filled my eye. An idiotic picture, except it was all I recognized. The wall lived for me in that picture. I clung to it as a fly. So I also wrote a poem about this other hero of mine, who supposedly delivered one of America's great poets, who was also from New Jersey, like Williams was. And this poem is called Dr. Williams Delivers a Baby. Dr. Williams was making his rounds, one dilapidated house than another, powdered oxygen on the aluminum siding, brown shingles on the roofs. In between visits, he'd sit in his car, a notebook on his lap and arrange words, instruments on a surgical tray, uterine sounds blunt as tire irons, scalpels sharper than paper. Often a cry from within the house would bring him running past its yard, past a tomato plant or wheelbarrow or red hen, things he took in as he sprang up the porch steps, hoping the family was already in the parlor, had put the kettle on, had found clean towels and disinfectant to swab the wound or welcome the crowning head. He put down his old-fashioned doctor's bag, a satchel peaked like a dormer at both ends, his initials stamped in gold long ago faded, and took off his wool overcoat. Tonight, he noted the burdened bookshelves, 
responsible chair, the gooseneck reading lamp, the desk loaded with papers, writing tools, and a folding pincenose. The father was a professor or writer of some degree who could afford both coal and electric. He suspected they were Jewish, the mother of German ancestry, the father Sephardic, but had no reason to know. In truth, he had only a cursory familiarity with their tribe and knew no Hebrew. But the mother's cry, soon, it was going to be soon. He timed her pain until a dark spot between her labia grew, and it was time to prep and drape her. Then he encouraged the head with a gloved hand, turned the shoulders, and delivered the rest. Dr. Williams told the father it looked like a writer. This noisy boy, vigorous and exploring, they would name him Alan. And the last poem of mine in the book uh, is about the most common brain tumor in children, the second commonest cause of a cancer-related death in a child. The tumor has a frightening name, and that is the title of the poem, Nebuloblastoma. I hear you're writing a thesis on the deaths of children expressed in poems. Perhaps you haven't seen them die yourself, and if you did, might forego the subject. I'm writing to tell you how the crusts of their scalps become very dry after chemo, and the tiny hairs left behind curl like watch springs. They are the first to know, their eyes glimmering with knowledge. It's useless to tiptoe around their beds, to whisper and tell them lies. Their dying is slow, and they see it from a long way off. So before reading my last poem, I want to introduce you to just uh, two poets that you may not be very familiar with. <clears throat> One is Yehud Amakai, the greatest Israeli poet of the 20th century. And uh, it shows you the return uh, to using medical imagery for societal issues. Uh, the poem is called A Pity. We were such a good invention. They amputated your thighs from my hips. As far as I'm concerned, they're always doctors, all of them. They dismantled us from each other. As far as I'm concerned, they're engineers. A pity, we were such a good and loving invention. An airplane made of a man and a woman, wings and all. We even got off the ground a little. We even flew. This next poet is Czech. And he not only was a physician and immunologist, but he was born in the same small, relatively small city, Pilsen, as I was, which I did not know until I really read it in detail in assembling the book. His name is Miroslav Holland. And this poem, called Casualty, is about having had to live under both the Nazis and the communists. They bring us crushed fingers, mended, doctor. They bring burnt out eyes, pounded owls of hearts. They bring a hundred white bodies, a hundred red bodies, a hundred black bodies, mended, doctor. On the dishes of ambulances, they bring the madness of blood, the scream of flesh, the silence of charring, mended, doctor. 
And while we are suturing inch after inch, night after night, nerve to nerve, muscle to muscle, eyes to sight, they bring in even longer daggers, even more thunderous bombs, even more glorious victories, idiots. So I'm going to close uh, with a poem that's like the author poem I read you. It's not all serious stuff in this book. And certainly the funniest poem in the book is by a Baltimorean, Ogden Nash, America's greatest master of light verse. <clears throat> and uh, this is his response to a physician who made the mistake that poem is called the common, the common poem. Go hang yourself, you old MD. You shall no longer hurt me. Pick up your hat and stethoscope. Go wash your mouth with laundry soap. I contemplate a joy exquisite in never paying you for your visit. I did not call you to be told my malady is a common cold. By pounding brow and swollen lip, by fever's hot and scaly grip, by those two red redundant eyes that weep like woeful April skies, by racking snuffle, snort, and spit, by handkerchief after handkerchief. This cold you wave as way as naught is the damnedest cold man ever caught. Give ear, you scientific fossil. Here is the genuine cold colossal, the cold of which researchers dream, the perfect cold, the cold supreme. This honored system humbly holds the super cold to end all colds, the cold crusading for democracy, the furor of the streptococracy. Bacilli swarm within my portals, such as were ne'er conceived by mortals, but bred by scientists wise and hoary in some Olympic laboratory. Bacteria as large as mice, with feet of fire and heads of ice, who never interrupt for slumber their stamping elephantine rumba. A common cold, forsooth, Gadzooks, ah yes, and Lincoln was jostled by Booth, Don Juan was a budding gallant, and Shakespeare's play shows signs of talent. The Arctic winter's fairly coolish, and your diagnosis is fairly foolish. Oh, what a derision history holds for the man who belittled the cold of colds. <laughs> Here in the city 
and right now is working at Brooklyn Park Middle School in Anne Arundel County. Shirley has published widely in literary journals around the country, and she has two books of poetry, A Little Breast Music, published by um, Passenger Books, and Afterwards, published in 2013 by Apprentice House. Um, and I, maybe you could talk a little bit about Afterwards and how it connects to some of the events that have been going on in the city. Just, you know, healing and... back row because there's no one in the back row. That's all right. Um, thank you so much. Um, yeah, Laura mentioned uh, my book afterwards. Um, 2010, we had a murder in Charles Village, a young Hopkins breast cancer researcher, um, talk about healing, named Stephen Pitcairn, and uh, was killed while on the way home from, walking home from Penn Station as he was speaking to his mom on the telephone, his mother in Florida. And uh, the Wendy used to live on that same block, uh, 2600 block of St. Paul Street. So I wrote a book called Afterwards, and there are many poems in Stephen's voice, um, just because I do feel that poetry can help heal. And uh, I'm still in touch with Stephen's mom. She just sent me an email last week, so that connection is, is very strong. I wanted to thank Michael so much for including me in this anthology. Uh, I met Michael, I think it was 10 years ago, when I was graduating from the University of Baltimore. I went to a reading that he did, and I boldly went up to him afterwards and asked him if I could join his poetry group. And um, he has been a mentor to me for all that time, and a true mentor to many poets in Baltimore, and we're very fortunate uh, to know you, Michael. And Laura I met when I was a, uh, in Kendra Kapalke's poetry class at the University of Baltimore and uh, we were in that class together. So it's like old homie. Um, this book, Michael, it, it's really so beautifully the way this book is organized. And I've had it now for about a month, and it just I keep discovering new things in here every time I pick it up. So I'm going to read two poems that I didn't write. Uh, I'm going to read two poems first that I didn't write, and then two poems uh, of mine that are in the anthology. So the first poem, and I, we've had three readings so far. This is our third launch, I guess you would say. And I've read this one of each one. But last night when I was reading it again, it's a poem called Quarantine by E. Van Boland, the Irish poet who was born in Dublin but teaches at, for many years at Stanford University. And she is writing this poem about the Irish potato famine of the mid-19th century. But there, listen to these lines. I mean, I've read this poem a million times, but last night with all that's going on in the city, I read these lines and they just took on different significance for me. In the morning, they were both found dead of cold, of hunger, of the toxins of a whole history. And that line just struck me so powerfully of the toxins of a whole history. So let me read this poem to you. Evan Boland, Quarantine. In the worst hour of the worst season, of the worst year of a whole people, a man set out from the workhouse with his wife. He was walking, they were both walking north. She was sick with famine fever and could not keep up. 
he lifted her and put her on his back. He walked like that west and west and north until at nightfall under freezing stars they arrived. In the morning they were both found dead of cold, of hunger, of the toxins of a whole history. But her feet were held against his breastbone. The last heat of his flesh was his last gift to her. Let no love poem ever come to this threshold. There is no place here for the inexact praise of the easy graces and sensuality of the body. There is only time for this merciless inventory. Their death together in the winter of 1847. Also what they suffered, how they lived. And what there is between a man and a woman and in which darkness it can best be proved. That poem is in the section, each section has a title, and this uh, is in section two, Contagions, Infections, and Fevers. And last night, and again, I, I felt like I needed to do this for myself, the whole last section of the book is called Convalescence. So these are all poems about healing, and I just felt like I wanted to read those last night. So I came across this poem that I guess I must have missed the first reading of the book. Um, and it's a wonderful poem. It's called Healing. And I wanted to read it today because, again, it pertains to today. Uh, it was written by D.H. Lawrence, who lived from 1885 to 1930. And I guess uh, we think of him as perhaps a short story writer or plays, but he also wrote many poems. And this is his poem, and it's called Healing. I am not a mechanism, an assembly of various sections, and it is not because the mechanism is working wrongly that I am ill. I am ill because of wounds to the soul, to the deep emotional self, and the wounds to the soul take a long, long time. Only time can help, and patience, and a certain difficult repentance, long, difficult repentance, realization of life's mistake, and the freeing oneself from the endless repetition of the mistake which mankind at large has chosen to sanctify. And if that doesn't pertain today, um, so I'm going to read here two poems. These are two family poems. And um, I was very fortunate in Rochester growing up with, I had three parents, my mother and my father and my aunt lived with us for many years. And uh, my mother and aunt were not only sisters, they were best friends. Uh, and they were separated twice in their lives, once in, in, as children when my grandfather left the family. Uh, and my grandmother became very ill. And another time in their 90s when they lived together, but they, my aunt developed a dementia and could not communicate well. Although she did communicate. So this poem uh, is in the section uh, called uh, The Voice from the Other Side of the Bed. The View, excuse me, The View from the Other Side of the Bed, Loved Ones of the Sick. So Voyage, my mother speaks to her sister, Alvina. I never knew your childhood. You went to live in Cohocton with Aunt Emily and Uncle Al, and I was sent to the Hillside Orphanage. After a decade apart, I wondered if we would ever connect as sisters. We healed in our 20s, wore matching dresses to dances at Loon Lake, 
where suitors pay 10 cents each for a chance to whirl us across the hardwood floor. We sunned at the beach with wealthy girls who befriended us. We saved for months for that cruise to Cuba on the Swedish boat Corinthia. Wake up, Albina. Do you remember the lizards in Havana, the white uniform you wore to the hospital pharmacy for almost half a century? Now you store trinkets in your old brassiers, lockets, lace, a keychain from Kmart. Bee cups make the best containers, you say, when you can sequence your thoughts. Last week, I found a bra in the bathtub, a nameless cotton ship sailing toward the drain with your dentures in the hold. Pieces of you scattered all over the house, a wig in the kitchen, the artificial breast resting like a flower near the commode. Alvina, I promise you my presence on your voyage to 96. We leave the dock, the words behind us, together through the tangled wind. Uh, before I read the next poem, which is about my Aunt Alvina, I just wanted this little dialogue. Okay, so my mother and aunt loved my poetry, but they particularly liked the poems about them. So, if they were here, right next to Laura in the front row, this would be like a little conversation. So my mother was Jean, and my aunt was Alvina. Alvina, did you see this new book? Shirley's in with William Shakespeare. And uh, my mother would say, I forgot which one went first. Well, anyway, the other one would say, you know, we got to celebrate. I'm going to make us a couple of Manhattans. They love their Manhattans. So that would be like a little conversation. Okay, so my aunt Alvina, this poem about her is in the section uh, eight called Doctors and Other Healers. So this is what I want to say about my Aunt Alvina. My aunt was my godmother. We were very close. And um, she went to UB, the University of Buffalo. And I went to UB, the University of Baltimore. And um, I actually, and I said this at the reading we had uh, at the Writers' Center, I had recently Googled my aunt's name and what came up was her entire senior yearbook from 1930, the University of Buffalo. And I learned that she was in a class of 62, the School of Pharmacy. There were 62 uh, graduates, and there were, uh, my math is terrible, I am. There were about 53 men, and the rest were women, only nine women. And my aunt was president uh, of her senior class, excuse me, vice president of her senior class, but she graduated first in her class see as Michael graduated in his class first. So this is about a relationship, a very great friendship that my aunt Elvina had with the very beloved Bishop of Rochester. Elvina and the Bishop. My aunt mixed liquids, counted pills. From the basement pharmacy, she sent capsules and elixirs, small gifts to heal the sick. Alvina Josephine nurtured patients she never met, except the Irish bishop who asked for her said, you put the roses back in my cheeks. He praised her skills in a verse she kept next to her rosary. When Alvina's beloved mother died, Bishop Carney offered the mass, his brogue a salve, a consoling prescription, a present returned to sender. Thank you.
Thank you, Shirley. I feel like your aunt and your mother are Our next reader is Clarinda Harris. She is Professor Emerita at Towson University, edits and directs Brickhouse Books, Inc., Maryland's oldest literary press, which has a table downstairs. I encourage you to visit them. A very recent Brickhouse Books activity includes a beautiful book by a beloved greater Baltimore poet and elder Gary Blankenberg. Harris's own most recent publications are The White Rail, a short story collection, and with co-editor Moira Egan, Hot Sonnets, an anthology. And Clarinda continues to work with prison writers. yelling. Do you know what fun it is to yell in the Pratt Library? 
The only other person I knew that do it, did it routinely was Richard Hart, who's the head of the humanities for many, many decades. And uh, he would never lower his voice when speaking in the library because it was everybody's library. It was their home. Why whisper? So anyway, a second sermon seems to have emerged. Um, I want to read uh, four poems, four sonnets, and that does mean that they are short poems, by a physician poet, Raphael Campo. It's in this wonderful book. Um, it is not on that page. Um, I had these so carefully marked. Um, Thank you so much. Then I put my stuff out, sorry about that. Um, Raphael Campo, I'm proud to say, uh, contributed sonnets to Moira Egan's and my anthology called Hot Sonnets, and it's an anthology of erotic sonnets of the 20th and 21st century. And that's how I came to know and love his work. Um, this is a sonnet sequence that um, is actually a, a narrative, and I love it very much. Um, Raphael Campos, The Distant Moon. One, admitted to the hospital again. The second bout of pneumocystis back in January almost killed him. Then he'd sworn to us he'd die home. He baked us cookies, which the students wouldn't eat. Before he left, the kitchen on S.A. is small but serviceable and neat. He told me stories. Richard Gere was gay and sleeping with a friend of his, and AIDS was an elaborate conspiracy effected by the government. He stayed four months. He lost his sight to CMV. Two. One day I drew his blood, and while I did, he laughed and said, I was his girlfriend now, his blood brother. Vampire slut, he cried, you'll make me live forever. Wrinkled brows were all I managed to reply. I know I'm drowning in his blood, his purple blood. I filled my seven tubes, the warmth was slow to leave them pressed inside my palm. I'm sad because he doesn't see my face, because I can't identify him. I hate the fact that he's my age and that across my skin he's there, my blood brother. Three. He said I was too nice, and after all, if Jodie Foster was a lesbian, then doctors could be clear. Residual guilt tingled down my spine. Okay, I'm done, I said as I withdrew the needle from his back and crept. The CSF was clear. I never answered him. That spot was framed in sterile paper drapes. He was so near death, telling him seemed pointless. Then he died. Unrecognizable to anyone but me, he left my needles deep inside his choking heart. An autopsy was done. Four. I'd read to him at night, his horoscope in the New York Times, The Advocate, some lines by Richard Howard gave us hope. A quiet hospital is infinite, the polished ice-white floors, the darkened halls that lead to almost anywhere, to death or ghostly lighted coke machines. I called to him one night at home, asleep. His breath, I dreamed, had filled my lungs. His lips, my lips, had touched. I felt as though I had touched a shrine, not disrespectfully, but in some lapse of concentration. 
in a mirror shines the distant moon. And uh, having taken such a, an intense and powerful and serious look at a night-lit hospital, I thought I would read one of my two poems. I'm so proud to have poems in here. Um, called Union Memorial Hospital. And uh, I do, to, to any of you who have heard this before, because there have been a, a little volley of launches for this great book, um, I apologize for the fact that, that within me lurks a deep and uncontrollable silliness. And uh, so I, I, I love the compo poems because they're so powerful and so unsilly, but this also takes place in a nightmare hospital, as I said. Uh, both Shirley and I have poems that refer to Union Memorial Hospital just up the street. Packed with, this, Union Memorial Hospital is the title, packed with naked bodies and every posture of abandon, this must be the most anti-sexual place in the world tonight. This wheezing, dozing hospital where every half-open door reveals a waxen homunculus in a bed that resembles a torture instrument or a significant other strewn over a reclining chair like discarded clothes. Awful holes emitting snores or apparatus. Worse, the parodies of veins suspended in clear plastic tubing from above while parodies of bowels gnarl around the bed legs. A persistent friction, the tug of a tube scotch-taped to my crotch, must, therefore, explain why, in this temple of anaphrodisia, I find that I'm counting myself to sleep with old lovers' names, counting how many love positions the mechanical bed could twist the body into by the right touch of the head-foot-up-down button, then finally counting the fluorescent stars in the sexy downtown skyline, having thrown the drapes back on the wall-sized window in my room to give the whole city a wink at my backless nightgown.
got these poems, retrieved them from far-flung places, figured out how to organize them into categories that are just breathtaking. Um, I really encourage you to, to take a look at this book. Before I, I I'm going to read the one poem of mine that's here, uh, and and a couple of others, but I wanted to also read, there, there are two um, beautiful prose works in here, and one is the foreword that was written by Michael Collier, and the other is an introduction that Michael wrote himself. And I just wanted to, to read the last few sentences from Michael's foreword, Michael Collier's foreword. By featuring poems that put the human individual at the center as either speaker or subject, Michael has created an intensely intimate experience of what it means to face mortality, one that gains power by being deeply personal. What I mean by personal is that we come to see these poems and their arrangement. They are not merely an anthology. They also represent the vision of a particular man, doctor and poet Michael Saltzman, whose vocations have come together seamlessly to provide all of us patients with an intricate, sometimes terrifying, sometimes reassuring map to the precariousness of life. Thank you for this. Okay, this first poem of mine is called Tumor, and it's in the section called The View from the Other Side of the Bed, Loved Ones of the Sick. There is a little um, thing about the metric system at the end, which may or may not be accurate, but we can blame that on someone else. You'll find out who. Tumor. I set the phone in its cradle and watched a warbler hopping in the autumn dogwood near the gate. The bird stopped in my yard on its way to Venezuela, minuscule, dusty yellow, striped on its wing. It could sit in my palm, except the little thing is quick, and I'm ashamed of myself for thinking in the midst of admiration for the bird inside its hollow bones, that I could crush it as I could a piece of paper or a leaf. But it won't be caught, and so I'm saved, though not for any goodness I possess. When my father said it was on his liver, 10 centimeters by 12 on his liver, 12 seemed too big to me to be in him, who was big to me, and is big even now that I am grown. The little warbler is four inches long. How big is a centimeter? When I was small, he taught me to get to inches, we divide by three. This poem I love, it's by um, John Stone who is a, was a cardiologist and lived in Atlanta. He lived from 1936 to 2008. It's a doctor, poet, doctor, <laughs> Getting to sleep in New Jersey. Not 20 miles from where I work, 
William Williams wrote after dark, after the last baby was caught, knowing that what he really ought to do was sleep. Rutherford slept, while all night William Williams kept scratching at his prescription pad, dissecting the good lines from the bad. He tested the general question whether feet or butt or head first ever determines as well the length of labor of a poem. His work is over. Bones and guts and red wheelbarrows, the loneliness and all the errors a heart can make the other end of a stethoscope. Outside, the wind corners the house with a long crow. Silently, his contagious snow covers the banks of the Passaic River where he walked once, full of fever, tracking his solitary way back to his office and the white day, a peculiar kind of bright-eyed bird, hungry for morning and the perfect word. Uh, and this last poem is by Anya Silver. She was born in 1968, and she teaches at Mercer University. Uh, it's in the section called Hospitals and Other Places of Healing. Leaving the Hospital. As the doors glide shut behind me, the world flares back into being. I exist again, recover myself, sunlit, undimmed by dark pains, the heat on my arms, the earth's breath. The wind tongues me to my feet, like a doe licking her newborn fawn. At my back, days measured by the vital signs, my mouth open and arm extended, the nighttime cries of a man withered, child-sized by cancer, and the bells of emptied IVs tolling through the hallways. Before me, life, mysterious, ordinary, holding off pain with its muscular wings. Stepping to the curb, an orange moth dives into the basket of roses that lately stood on my sick room table, and the petals yield to its persistent nudge, opening manifold and golden. Thank you.